Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. And good afternoon and welcome to this edition of News in Focus. We're glad that you've joined us. We're going to be talking about a very important subject today that's going to affect all Ohioans as the redistricting commission. Well, it's derailing as we talk, and we're going to talk about uh, the problems with the redraw of Ohio's district lines, how we have done it historically, how we're doing it currently under the redistricting commission guidelines that was on ballot issue a few years ago, but this this is its first rodeo, as they say. It's a, its first uh, time of doing uh, redraw of Ohio's district lines by the redistricting commission's guidelines, and it's not going very well. And maybe some of you have heard that the Ohio Supreme Court, uh, in a decision that was swung by the chief justice of the court, Maureen O'Connor, who is a Republican or has been. She joined with the Democrats, basically throwing the whole process into chaos. Uh, the maps were drawn by the Ohio legislature, and uh, they were submitted um, to, uh, and then there was a court case that challenged them. Democrats uh, raised uh, their challenge to the maps. There was not concurrence by the minority members on the commission, and uh, that means they would have been four-year maps instead of ten years, and yet the Democrats went ahead and filed in court, and the court took its good old time, something like 90 days, according to uh, reports, to get a decision back, and that has thrown everything into a tailspin because the filing deadline is coming up in early February. Candidates were standing by both for the U.S. Senate race, uh, yet to be filled here in Ohio, of course. We have a primary with the U.S. Senate race, and uh, that seat will be filled in November. Uh, Rob Portman has announced his retirement, so Ohio will have a, uh, a very spirited uh, Senate race. Of course, the 15 congressional districts down from one, we uh, lost a congressional district, so we have 15 instead of 16. And, of course, the uh, 10-year census just concluded. We're going to talk about how that played into it as well and politics well, it's having its way because the Biden administration slow-walked the reports of the uh, census reports back to the states, hoping to throw red states like Ohio into chaos in their election uh, bids for the midterm elections because things are not looking good for Mr. Biden as his poll numbers are in the 30s, and it's abysmal. And uh, there are lots of congressmen basically announcing their retirements on the Democrat side of the aisle. There's so much going on here. And we've got a lot of programs to cover this in the next several months. So as we say, buckle up. It's going to get real interesting. Well, with me on the phone, I'm really pleased to have Rob Walgate from the American Policy Roundtable, a fine organization here in Ohio and also across the country. And uh, Rob is uh, working in Ohio. We're going to talk about this. Rob, welcome to the program. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Rob, uh, for stopping by today to talk about this all-important, uh, you know, basically process of redrawing Ohio's district lines. And let's start with, um, well, let's talk about first how things used to be with the apportionment board before we got to this redistricting commission. How did historically the lines in Ohio get drawn with the apportionment board? 
Well, in essence, the way they've been drawn in the past um, was the party that was in control, right, and held certain offices in the state. That's how they got done. And sometimes there would be um, discussion. Other times there would just be part of the process. And I mean, what the term that's used gerrymandering has been around for ages, correct? Right. I mean, people have talked about it forever. Um, but sometimes that created a mess. And when it comes to um, congressional lines, that was drawn; those were drawn by the Ohio legislature. They were part of that process as well and, and part of that plan. So um, when it got tricky, Chris, is over the past few cycles, and you talked about the census data, um, is when more computer programs became involved and lines began to be manipulated in houses or certain neighborhoods drawn in, certain neighborhoods drawn out. And I think that's when people started look, taking a closer look with a fine-tooth comb about what was going on and what was the process that was in place to draw the lines. Because we're not only talking about, um, you know, we talked about congressional lines. I know you talked about how we're going from 16 to 15, but then when you take a look at the state rep lines, we have 99 state reps in the state of Ohio, and we have 33 state senators. So each state Senate district matches up with three state rep districts. So those all have to go and form and, and, and make a nice, pretty map. But unfortunately, as you and I both know, um, the pretty part doesn't happen too often. Well, that's right. So let's talk about, for instance, we're losing a congressional seat, a seat. And some people may be wondering, it's like, well, how does that happen? Well, it happens by uh, the uh, amount of people that you have in your state, and it's drawn that way. More uh, bigger states with more population have more congressional seats, and therefore representation in Congress. Now, Ohio, which has traditionally been a battleground state, if you go all the way back to 1980, uh, 1980 uh, when I first started getting involved with all this, I think we had something like 23 congressional seats back then. And then over the years, as uh, the states of Florida and California, uh, New York, of course, and other states grew in population, Ohio started the attrition of uh, losing some congressional seats. And each year we lose about one. One year we lost two, I think. And so now we're down to 15. And we've actually held our population about 11.5 million people. It's not that we've actually lost population. We just haven't grown as fast as, let's say, Tennessee or some of the Carolina states that uh, South and North Carolina that are growing in population. Now, of course, New York actually lost congressional seats. So did California. People are moving out of those blue states because of the high taxation, the liberal policies. Uh, basically, the, the way things are going is life in, in, in both California and New York. Uh, well, it's not uh, to their liking of many people who have the ability to move, and they're moving to the Carolinas, to Florida, uh, Tennessee, and other places. But uh, Ohio has pretty much stayed the same, and in, in thus doing, we've lost congressional seats. But the Ohio House and Senate, those remain the same, 99 uh, House members, 33 Senate uh, members, and, of course, the redraw of the line. So let's talk about this. So the apportionment board, just to tie that up a little bit, it was made up of the governor, the auditor, right. the secretary yep. of state, um, and the um, – who did I mean? Oh, the speaker of the house and the Speaker Senate of the president. house and then two – 
Yep, and two members of the minority party. Yes. That's correct, and that's what with the, the apportionment board was, and that's how it would be negotiated. And, of course, you have to factor into that with congressional districts, minority districts, and that's the federal law dictates that, and yes. so there would be minority districts. Well, that's still in play, and yet here comes this redistricting commission, a ballot initiative that started in the legislature. Let's talk about how that happened back in <laughs> yeah. 2015. Yeah. Yeah, uh, about how that discussion happened. If I could hit on one thing that you talked about, Chris, right there, that I think is important when it comes to congressional numbers across the country, and you said it, it was based on population, not citizens. It's based on population, not citizens. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. And the fact that Ohio is losing seats, and in many instances, we're losing seats to states that have increased their population but they haven't, in essence, increased the amount of citizens in their states by a large margin. That's important to talk about and understand because you see that um, should it be representation, what was the intent? I mean, you look back in the intent in the beginning and the foundation of the country, they would have talked about population because of the citizen aspect and the citizen question. But today, there's been a lot of talk and discussion. Should that be changed? And I mean, we even talked about it on the census last time when it was sent out by the Trump administration, because the citizen question is not on there. The only question is, is who resides there, correct? Oh, that's right. And so when we have so many illegals pouring over our southern border, and we, we've seen over the last 12 months with the Biden administration literally uh, I don't know what the big number is, but it's literally millions of people have traversed the southern border into the continental United States. They are non-citizens. They are illegals. And yet they're making their way into our communities. Uh, that's going to be a big problem going forward in a big debate uh, that uh, no doubt will take place. But as you say, in California, where you even have guest workers that come in, uh, in Ohio has those as well during our farming season, it it begs the question: Is it citizens or population, and who's being counted in this census? That's a great yeah. great thought there, Rob. Yeah. It's, I never it, considered it's all, that. It's all population, and that causes concerns. And if you took out and only counted citizens, then there would actually be a fluctuation. And states like Ohio would gain a seat. Michigan may have another seat. Pennsylvania may have another seat. And you would see maybe Texas lose some. You'd see California lose some more. I think you'd see New York lose one and even Florida lose lose one or two more. So that's just something I wanted to tie in there. But to get back to how we got to this place in Ohio, um, you were talking about, uh, oh, man, it's what had come up was folks were not happy with how districts were being drawn in the state. And they say things were being gerrymandered. And quite frankly, when you look at the, how the Republicans have drawn some lines, it does have to make you scratch your head and say what was going on. My solution always was, Chris, is to go in sixth grade classrooms across the state, give them 99 different color crayons, 33 different color crayons, and uh, 16 different color crayons and say, draw draw even districts. And I think our, our grade school kids could have got done a better job in many instances. But here we are. Um, people weren't happy with how the lines were being drawn. And you saw things happen that made people scratch their head. I mean, you have to look no further than Medina County in Ohio and see that in congressional representation, if you ask people in Montville Township where they live, they say Medina. But they're not in Medina. They're in Montville Township. But yet the congressional line divides Montville Township 
and the city of Medina, which has always baffled me and made me scratch my head and say, I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. But someone came up with, up with it for a reason. And now some people say, well, Rob, there has to be a line drawn somewhere. I totally agree. There has to be a line drawn somewhere. Um, there has to be. But should you be splitting communities? So that put people in an uproar. That made people upset that, that basically the party in charge was drawing all the lines. And they were threatening to go to the ballot and had drafted language for a constitutional amendment to change the way that lines are drawn. Um, and Chris, as I go through this history, um, please, uh, please correct me anywhere I'm mistaken because I'm thinking back about it five, six, seven years ago, and we're all doing this from memory. But um, they were going to go to the ballot. And one fortunate thing we have in Ohio is we have access to the ballot to change the Constitution. We as citizens have the ability to write write a, write something, a proposed amendment, get signatures, get it authorized, then go out and get an awful lot more signatures and change the Constitution. And that's what a group was going to do. And um, as it changed, came to drawing lines in the legislature, got a little concerned about that. And they went behind closed doors and they negotiated a deal and it ended up being a joint resolution to be put before the voters of Ohio to change how lines were drawn. And no signatures were needed to get gathered because the General Assembly, in essence, did the work for them in changing how districts would be drawn throughout the state of Ohio. For state legislative districts, I believe it was a House joint resolution. And for the congressional districts, it was a Senate joint resolution. Well, let's talk about that with the redraw of the district line. So, of course, there's always debate that goes on each uh, census and then the redraw of the district lines and how representation in communities will be uh, represented with uh, new districts being drawn. And without question, that's a impartial, bipartisan uh, public uh, debate and complaint. But let's talk about the folks that got behind this. The League of Women Voters, other left-wing interests, uh, were pushing this initiative. One is because Ohio, for the last two decades, has been primarily a red state. Republicans have dominated the legislature, the statewide offices, the governor's office. Uh, but um, uh, prior to that, you know, you'd have to go back. Uh, my predecessors, they would talk about a time in which Democrats dominated. So they Democrats dominated for a couple of decades. In the last two decades, it's been Republicans. And the state has gone more conservative uh, in a lot of ways. And so uh, whatever the Democrats have been pushing as far as a left-wing agenda, it's not winning over with uh, the majority of Ohioans, and they are voting for uh, Republicans, but given a two-party system primarily. But that being said, the debate of how district lines are being drawn is an open debate, and impartial in that sense is that uh, the general public does have a proper complaint about it, but this initiative with the League of Women Voters, and when I say that, people think, well, they're a nonpartisan group. No, they're not. I've been doing this for two decades. For instance, we're an organization we don't endorse or support any political party or candidate. We do not endorse candidates. I personally don't endorse candidates. haven't in two decades. The, the left-wing <laughs> League of Women Voters absolutely plays left-wing uh, to the Democratic Party. That's their interest. And then we've actually talked to Republican folks on the ground and Republican women that wanted to be part of the League of Women Voters, and they basically get the cold shoulder and the push out the door. So, you know, I don't want to hear it that this is, oh, this is a great group. No, they're not. They're just a left-wing group, and they're a very partisan group. But that being said, they were pushing this initiative, this redistrict draw. And I do think a lot of Ohioans were saying, how can this be better, Right. Well, this obviously is not the answer, and we're going to talk about that because 
This thing has basically derailed. Now, I talked to one of the drafters, and he shall go unnamed, but he was serving in the legislature in the time in the Ohio Senate, and he was actually one of the drafters of the redistricting law, working with Democrats in a nonpartisan way to redraw this, to draw, draft the language for this redistricting commission. Well, how was it to work? Well, it was to allow the public to have some open public meetings. Those happened in September this year and in October. And then those uh, thoughts and interest and opinions of the public were brought before the commission. The commission now was made up of, again, some of the same apportionment board members of the Senate president, the Speaker of the House, the Governor, the Auditor, Secretary of State, and uh, the minority leader in the House and Senate. There was a little interesting caveat there, though, Rob, is that you had nepotism there. You had it. Fate would have it that the the minority leader in the House was uh, Miss Sykes, and her dad was the the representative in the Senate. What what was your thoughts about that? Well, it's how it was drawn up, and and you know, there. Uh, I guess the worst the worst kept secret in Columbus was that. Uh, Amelia Sykes was going to run for Congress, right? I mean, that was the talk all along. And, and she actually thing. announced that on yep. Friday that she is going to run. Yep. 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 The worst kept secret in Columbus, that was announced. Um, but again, in what district? What will that district look like? We don't know because right now the court has thrown everything into total chaos and disarray. So we're not 100% sure how that will look. Well, let's talk about that. So the process was is that the the uh, the, the maps uh, consideration was brought in by the public. The minority members expressed their interest in how uh, they thought the maps should be drawn. But the majority, which is Republicans, controlling the auditor's office, Secretary of State, uh, the governor's office, Ohio House and Ohio Senate, they are the majority. They drew the lines uh, to favor uh, their numbers in the House and the Senate. And uh, several maps were drafted. The final maps then were submitted uh, with some input, actually, from members of Congress. And then they were submitted for a vote in the legislature, because that's who really confirms the districts. And they voted in the affirmative. Then the Democrats challenged it, and it goes to the court. It goes to the state court. And the way that the commission is worded, it does not give them an option to go to federal court from what we understand. And that's why... We are in the looming of a constitutional crisis in Ohio. This thing can go on and on. We're already late. We're going to miss that filing deadline of February 2nd. These candidates won't be able to file for office because they don't know their districts. Uh, Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor, she has joined with the left wing of the bench. She has joined with the Democrats. And it looks as if she's in her last year of office. And it looks as if she's going to basically thrust this state into chaos. I got. I mean, we got to let the folks know that, Robin. I know they're saying, hey, we haven't heard this anywhere. No, you haven't. Why? Because there's 22 licensed attorneys in both the Ohio House and the Ohio Senate, and they can be disciplined by the Supreme Court if they were to raise a voice of criticism against Ms. O'Connor, the Chief Justice, who, who just joined the Democrats in this vote. And then also you have other members in the legislature that are afraid to say anything because they're afraid that their district lines would basically be drawn in such a way that they couldn't win re-election. When you have the voices of the public servants neutered like that, Rob, that leaves it to people like you and me to be able to tell the folks in the general public, hey, we got a problem here, 
and it's 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 looming to be a big one. Your thoughts? Yeah, it, it it's looming to be a bit chaotic. Um, the way that the amendment was drawn is if the lines didn't have um, support from whatever the minority members of the commission were, then and it didn't receive that through the legislature, that it would be a four-year map, not a 10-year map, and they would have the opportunity to redo it. Now, obviously, that's going to all be probably thrown out the window as well um, when you have these lines drawn from these maps. But I think a lot of it comes to, Chris, from um, non-understanding and, and misinformation. They talk about R's and D's, and they talk about the percentage of R's and D's, and that's how the lines should be drawn. I don't think people, or I don't think they did take into account, and they should take into account, the millions and millions of unaffiliated voters, of independents in the state of Ohio. I can tell you I am an unaffiliated voter. I pulled my um, party affiliation. So now I give up the right to vote in primaries. Obviously, you can change your mind on primary day and go in and pull a ballot for either party on that day um, if you are registered to vote uh, properly. But that doesn't take into account that many folks don't fall in love with a letter next to someone's name. They vote for the best candidate. But when I read the court opinion, when I read um, the talking heads in the newspaper and listen to them on radio and television, it, that's not taken into account. All they're taken into account is Republicans and Democrats. And I would say the majority of Ohioans don't identify that way. There are a lot of independents, uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. You may have a higher ideal of it, Rob, but there are some folks that are just lazy. They don't want to get involved in a primary, and they don't want to really just get out there and vote in the early primary. They want to well, vote in the general election. That's true. Yeah, yeah, we do. And the reason is they don't want to labeled with one party or the other. They realize that's that, true, too. Uh, the, the that's founders, true. the founders warned us about the dangers of political parties and the factions that would be caused. And I think that's evident um, today when you look at it. But when I read the court's decision and it causes me to scratch my head, you're right. It could be throw, it could throw us into chaos. But also, too, when you think about I know I'm going to give an example. Um, Max Miller has been campaigning, talking about the 16th congressional district for a long time. And even when he was campaigning, we knew that there would, in essence, be no 16th congressional district because there would only be 15 in Ohio. So not only was he out campaigning against Anthony Gonzalez, they didn't know if they'd be in the same districts based upon residency. Now, I understand you could run for any district you want, regardless of where you live at the congressional level, but I just think it goes to show that there wasn't a lot of work done um, behind the scenes to inform Ohioans about what exactly was going on. Well, this commission is basically derailed, and this is, and people are going to say, well, won't they come up with a solution? That's possible, but what's going to happen is now the legislature is going to have to redraw the maps or at least resubmit them. They may choose not to redraw, but to resubmit them, and then you've got a roving door between the court and the legislature and the executive branch, and folks, we're into a showdown, a constitutional crisis in Ohio. It's it's happening as we speak, and you're going to hear more about it. Visit our website, ohioca.org. There's more information there. Uh, and also, the Ohio, uh, the American Policy Roundtable, Rob Walgate, that's aproundtable.org. Follow their fine work. Thank you, Rob, for being my guest today. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. 
Thank you, my friend. God bless you. We'll be talking more about this for sure, I'm afraid. All right, if you've missed any of today's program, you can hear it in its entirety at our website at ohioca.org. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. And the soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy and the Allied liberation of Europe, on D-Day, all those warriors set out on their mission President Franklin Delano Roosevelt led our nation in prayer. The D-Day Prayer Project is an effort to add FDR's D-Day Prayer in its entirety at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. This wonderful historical presidential prayer will be a lasting tribute to our World War II veterans. If you'd like to make a contribution towards the effort of adding this prayer to the memorial, go to the website at ddayprayerproject.org. That's ddayprayerproject.org. I'm Johnette Cruz, and I'm a busy mom. Then a friend told me about TrustBlueReview.com, a new website powered by the Christian Blue Network. She uses it to find trusted Christian-owned businesses. I checked it out, read the helpful reviews, and found a great family dentist. Now I use TrustBlueReview for all my family's needs. For peace of mind, do what I did. Visit TrustBlueReview.com or download their free mobile app from your app store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Review. Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust the following is a previously aired broadcast. Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. Good afternoon and welcome to this edition of News in Focus. We're glad that you've joined us. This week, uh, there is history in Washington before the U.S. Supreme Court as an abortion case is being heard from the state of uh, uh, Mississippi, and it is a 15-week viability bill that's being challenged by a uh, Planned Parenthood and pro-choice group that's made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And, of course, this case, may be the case that strikes down Roe and sends abortion law back to the states. And if it does that, then in Ohio we have a heartbeat bill that was passed a few years ago, and it would ban abortion in the state of Ohio when a heartbeat can be detected. So again, for pro-lifers who have waited long and arduous battle over the decades about abortion in our country and in our state, this may be the time, and yet I, I get the idea that some of the emotions and enthusiasm is checked by pro-lifers uh, because uh, 30 years ago, when Casey was before the, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1992, 
Many of us believed at that time that that would have overturned Roe. It did not. And but uh, so that's why pro-life community is a little jaded on what to be optimistic and hopeful for of what might actually happen after all these decades and years of education of uh, that life uh, is in the womb and needs to be protected. We're going to go right to a clip from the hearing this week, and it is uh, Justice Samuel Alito, one of my favorites on the bench, by the way, and he is questioning the pro-abort attorney uh, who's defending, uh, you know, uh, arguing against the pro-life law of Mississippi. And let's go to that because I think it's very key to this case in the hearing that was this week before the U.S. Supreme Court. Let's go to that. May I ask you a question about stare decisis, counsel? Um, your, your colleagues on the other side have emphasized that uh, Casey rejected Roe's trimester framework and replaced it with an undue burden standard. They argue that the undue burden standard was uh, not well known to the law before that. Uh, and, and then they argue that the undue burden standard has evolved over time, too, in ways that the court has found difficult to agree upon. In Hellerstadt, for example, they, they, they point out in their briefs that uh, the court seemed to suggest that a court should consider both the benefits and the burdens associated with the uh, proposed restriction. In June Medical, more recently, uh, the court splintered on, on, on that same question. Uh, whether benefits could be considered or only burdens. And so the argument goes that this has proved to be uh, putting aside all the other um, obviously difficult questions in the case, that, that, that the standard itself has proved difficult to administer and that that is relevant to the stare decisis analysis. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. Yes, Your Honor. The first point I'd like to make is the undue burden test is not at issue in this case. That is the test that applies to regulations, not prohibitions. And the state has conceded that this is a prohibition. In fact, that's the title of this law, is an act to prohibit abortion after 15 weeks. And the only thing that's at issue in this case is the viability line. And the viability line has been enduringly workable. The lower federal courts have applied it consistently and uniformly for 50 years, and the Fifth Circuit here below had no difficulty striking down this law unanimously, 3-0. So it's been an exceedingly workable standard. And if I may return to your question, Mr. Chief Justice, a reasonable possibility standard would not be workable. It would ultimately boil down to an argument that states can prohibit a category of women from exercising a constitutional right merely because of the number of people in the category. And that's just not how constitutional rights work. A state would never say that it could ban religious services on a Wednesday evening, for example, simply because most people could attend religious services on another night of the week. So, so I actually just wanted to, uh, th 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 that's helpful, I think. I just want to make sure I understand what you're telling me, counsel, that, that if the court were to, in this case, step past viability and apply undue burden, the undue burden test to uh, regulations prior to viability, you would agree with the other side, I, I think, that that's not a workable standard. Is, is, that, is that a fair understanding of what you're, you're telling the court? No, Your Honor. I, I you believe, think that would be workable? I believe, that, if I may clarify, I believe the undue burden test has been workable for regulations. That I, is. I, I understand that. I, I, if it were to apply, if the court were to, and I thought this is what you were saying in response to the Chief Justice, but maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, please correct me if I am, but it, what, what, what is your argument against applying the undue burden standard prior to viability? 
if the undue burden standard, as this court laid out in Casey, which includes the viability line, no, is no, no, applied. I'm, I'm asking, I know, I know, we're, we're fighting the hypothetical here, counsel, all right? Accept the hypothetical. Uh, hypothetically, the court were to extend the undue burden standard to regulations prior to viability. Would that be workable or would that not be workable in your view? Without viability, it would not be workable, Your Honor, because it would ultimately, again, always come down to a claim that states can bar a certain category of people from exercising this right simply because of the number of people in the category. And that's not a workable standard, and it's not a, a constitutional I appreciate standard. that clarification. Thank you. And again, that was Justice Samuel Lito questioning uh, Center for Reproductive Rights lawyer Julie Rickleman, uh, who was arguing against the Mississippi uh, pro-life law, which uh, prohibits abortion after 15 weeks. And the question is viability. And with us on the phone is Attorney Josh Brown from Columbus, Ohio. He has actually argued before the Ohio Supreme Court. He is licensed to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court. He is a constitutional attorney, and he's a friend of the Ohio Christian Alliance, and he has actually represented us before the Ohio Supreme Court on a case in the last few years. Josh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Chris. Well, thank you, my friend, for uh, joining us today to discuss this, and I know you're ex as excited about it as we are as to what this actually might mean. And, of course, uh, today is when the hearing was uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. The decision uh, may be made later this week. The announcement might be next month or it may be in June. We're still there's some debate about that as to when we might know what the court actually decided. Uh, but the court also did something in recent weeks with the Texas uh, heartbeat bill, which is close to our hearts here in Ohio because we have a heartbeat bill that we worked on for 10 years with a group of pro-life groups across Ohio worked on that. Uh, and we want to give credit to who credit is due. Janet Folger actually championed that bill, and we all uh, played uh, assistance in getting it over the finish line. But the fact is, is that uh, Ohio would have a heartbeat bill if the decision was to throw the uh, uh, basically throw Roe out and send it back to the states. Your thoughts along those lines? Is that what would happen in this case with the justices making a decision? What are what are a couple of different ways in which they can decide this case? In other words, uh, Chris, I think that uh, to answer your question, that we really don't know because jurisprudence on abortion has made no sense since 1973, and many commentators have talked about that, including um, Justice Scalia, even in some of his opinions. Uh, and so I'll tell you a little bit about the evolution, and then uh, if they depart from that course or if they you know, they could double down and go backwards, they could go forwards. But Roe versus Wade found that there was a constitutional right to have an a uh, fundamental constitutional right to have an abortion uh, based on the idea of right to privacy and right to make a woman to make her own choices. And in 1993, in Casey, they upheld the uh, underlying principle of Roe, which is a right to an abortion, but they changed the structure of it and used this idea called viability. And in order for the state to impose any restrictions on abortion, pre-viability, they have to uh, <clears throat> not impose an undue burden on the constitutional right to an abortion or the alleged constitutional right. 
So read the documents in this case, they are attacking the underlying premise of Roe versus Wade 100%. And they are saying that it was bad law and that there's nowhere found in the Constitution a right to an abortion. And what you heard there at the end of that clip is really interesting. And if you want to go further on that, I would actually uh, read Professor Lee Strang's amicus brief in this case, and it's available online to discuss this blog. Um, <clears throat> in that brief, he explained how the other side is trying to use the Obergefell decision, which was the decision to uh, mandate gay marriage, and they're trying to apply that to abortion. And the way they're doing it is they're saying that the premise to Obergefell is that anybody who uh, is excluded from a right it, that is not uh, that's not the constitutional, and so they said that there's an underlying right to abortion to um, to marriage, and if you exclude a certain group, then uh, that's unconstitutional. So they're trying to apply that to uh, abortion. I think that's really awkward and and not a good fit. And <clears throat> so, like I said, String explains that pretty well. Uh, to, to really get to answering your question, though, I think that they could take it the next step. They could go all the way into uh, attacking and getting rid of the underlying premise of Roe itself. They've shown a reluctance to do that as a court for a long time. So they may try to split the baby in some way and try to come up with another framework to layer, to layer on top of the underlying premise to Roe. That's when it would get so unpredictable and confusing because. The workability of the existing viability system is at issue here, and that's just the practicality of getting consistent rulings from one court in one case to the next, and it's been so inconsistent and so um, unworkable that that's what has really created the premise for the court to have this in front of, it, of itself. The only way to solve that problem is what you're saying, which is to make it a state issue again. The proponents have have uh, cited the Tenth Amendment, which is the, the amendment that says that any rights not delegated to the federal government are delegated to the states, or retained by the states, actually. So there's a lot of different directions they could take it. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization and to set free a suffering humanity. And the soldiers who stormed the beaches of Normandy and the Allied liberation of Europe. On D-Day, all those warriors set out on their mission. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt led our nation in prayer. The D-Day Prayer Project is an effort to add FDR's D-Day Prayer in its entirety at the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. This wonderful historical presidential prayer will be a lasting tribute to our World War II veterans. If you'd like to make a contribution towards the effort of adding this prayer to the memorial, go to the website at ddayprayerproject.org. That's ddayprayerproject.org.
Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Well, let's talk about Chief Justice John Roberts. When he first came to the court, we saw him as a libertarian. We saw him as, um, uh, you know, someone who wasn't going to overturn uh, existing law. Um, And he believed in um, states' rights in that sense, federalism. But he has not done that. He has, you know, in the cases he's decided and been the swing vote, it's just been just the opposite. So, We've not seen this from him, but we might see from him now. As uh, Today, let me read this statement. Uh, John Roberts, why isn't 15 weeks enough to choose whether to abort a baby? Uh, the question he put forward to uh, the folks representing the, uh, uh, the pro-abort uh, interest in Mississippi. He says, if you think that the issue is of choice, that uh, women should have a choice to terminate their pregnancy, that supposes that there is a point at which they've had the fair choice opportunity of two choice, Robert said. And why would 15 weeks be an appropriate line? Viability, it seems to me, and there's that word viability again, it seems to me doesn't have anything to do with choice, but it, if, if it, it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? Now, again, this is um, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is going to be an important vote on this decision. So, Let's go through the votes here, shall we? I mean, uh, President Trump, in an unprecedented manner for a uh, single-term president, was able to appoint three justices, count them, three justices to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. I'm not even sure when that happened (laughs) in the past. Uh, So the left just went apoplactic when that happened. And, of course, they they fought vigorously and uh, doxed and uh, did everything that they could but outside of creating a riot up on uh, Capitol Hill when the proceedings for their confirmation was going on, especially with uh, uh, Kavanaugh. But um, here we go. We've got Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and um, and so, you know, I don't, and, you know, what do you think about the three new justices, Josh, and where they're going to come down on this decision? I think we're Amy, uh, Amy uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. President Trump appointed his three justices. The characteristics he was looking for was judges who were not beholden to the academic community and would rule based on what the law says, what the law is. And it appears he hit a home run with all three of them. I think he was particularly interested in uh, judges who weren't deferential also to uh, the bureaucracy. And what you have here is uh, something that has been sort of this uh, sidebar in the law where there's all these exceptions and all these unique types of situations, but it's more the social issues. So uh, we don't know um, really where any of them are going to come down on an abortion issue because uh, I don't know that that's uh, what they were selected for, but we know they had a history of uh, showing a more pro-life um, uh, background, I guess you could say, uh, or at least giving us reason to believe we could count their, uh, on their votes. I don't know if they're willing to go as far as to overrule uh, Roe all the way. 
So what I would anticipate is just the nature of the court. They tend to just want to layer rules on top of rules. And so I think that there's a good chance we're just going to get another layer, you know, and, and the things that Justice Roberts said that you quoted, that doesn't indicate to me he's ready to overrule Roe. That tells me that he is interested in playing with the system and tinkering with it a little bit more, which I would uh, suggest will only lead to another, you know, several years of more confusion and with an unworkable law because uh, fundamentally you're trying to enforce something as a constitutional right that is not a constitutional right. And it's not a constitutional right for a reason because uh, the, if you, you know, uh, Professor Strang actually wrote about this very well in his amicus that I referred to earlier, the amicus brief that he submitted in this case, the fundamental, the fundamental issue as well as the person uh, who has not been born yet should be recognized as a human being endowed with human rights. And the ju- the justices since the 70s have not acknowledged that problem. Blackman, Justice Blackman wrote that those rights are not endowed upon an unborn person. But even though people have disagreed with it, they haven't had the courage to overrule it and go straight after it. So that's really what needs to happen here, as Professor String really outlined very clearly. They need to go after the issue of when does human life begin. And if you really ask that question, uh, it's very hard not to conclude that uh, human life begins uh, at some point before actual birth. And that line that's being drawn, the viability, it's arbitrary, and it doesn't make any sense. uh, Because, first of all, it's a line that moves. It's not a clear line. And there's all kinds of things that are in place by the time you get to viability, which is a heart, you you know, you're going to have a heartbeat by that time. Fetus will be able to feel pain. Uh, You have a DNA code that is unique to that individual that's already been formed. So um, my concern is, again, that they would um, just complicate the matter rather than simplifying it by overruling rule. Well, I understand your thoughts along those lines, Josh, but I'm going to tell you, I think that the court is going to uh, uphold this Mississippi law, which would send it back to the states. I mean, whether we're saying that that overturns Roe, I do believe that this will be upheld, which also means that the Texas heartbeat bill will be upheld. And for all intents and purposes, it will mean that abortion goes back to the states. I think this is the time. I think a, a lot of people like yourself who have seen the courts do all these kinds of things over the years, but something just tells me that this is the moment uh, that we're going to see it go back to the states. Does it mean that abortion would end in, in America? No, because states like New York and California and other blue states, have uh, they have abortion laws up to the ninth month in New York. You saw Governor Cuomo, who left uh, disgracefully out of office, driven out of office. He he was champion and and celebrating and applauding that you could abort a fetus up to the time in which it was born. Uh, that man is now gone, and uh, so that's in the state of New York. In Ohio, we have a heartbeat bill, and in Texas and in Mississippi and other states, Arkansas and Alabama, they, these are states that have pro-life legislation on the books, and I think that we're going to see a court that sends it back to the states, and it's going to be a great moment, but it doesn't mean that it's over. Now, you know, when we think about this, folks, about abortion, we think about these nine justices. There's just nine people. Look, 
uh, our form of government, you know, have three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. And so, you know, as John Adams said, our Constitution is made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. You know, Josh, when we think about this, the last generation, last 40 years, almost 50 years now that this was decided, America has been on a very slippery slope of immorality across the board. You talked about that the, the, those who are trying to support this abortion uh, law uh, and, and oppose the pro-life law uh, using Oberfeld, which basically legalized sodomy in this country uh, with a, a decision on the court a few years ago. So let's not have any pretenses here. I mean, when we think about it, you don't think about Sotomayor or, uh, you know, Justice Kagan, uh, you know, voting in support of the Mississippi law, that's not going to happen. But as I look at Justice Thomas and Justice Alito and uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, Amy Comey Barrett, who's the uh, junior of the court, and the Chief Justice Roberts, they could have a 5-4 decision here. They could have a 6-3 decision. I'm suspecting if that's the case, I think Alito's probably going to uh, write the majority opinion. What's your thoughts on that, if it goes that way? Who would write the majority opinion? Good question, because traditionally it would have been Anthony Kennedy, but you know he's been replaced on the court. So um, I would love it if Alito is the one who actually writes the opinion, because you know he's one of the most eloquent and most intelligent uh, lawyers that I'm aware of. But uh, Thomas would be a great one to write it as well, especially since you know he tends to get right to the point and show lets the law speak for itself and and um, relies on the law for his opinions rather than uh, my criticism of Justice Kennedy was that uh, his personal opinion was uh, his legal opinion a lot of the time. And so uh, um, I do think that uh, it'd be great to have Alito write the opinion. Well, that's right. And so, so let's talk about timing now. So I've heard a couple of different reports that actually they're going to be deciding this by uh, week's end. Uh, but that uh, we won't know the decision till next month, or will be will it be in June when they normally release a lot of the of the decisions? What what when may we hear what they have decided in this case? I don't know, uh, but I'll tell you that there is a process more behind the scenes of the injunctions. And uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, the just the new justice, uh, had. Uh, was assigned to the Texas case, and she did not impose an injunction on it. So that was a, I think that's what really motivated people in this case, because uh, normally in the past, the judges justice have put injunctions on those types of laws. And so the fact that she didn't uh, was a very promising sign. So behind the scenes, uh, it might be a good idea to take a look at the injunction process, and uh, that might give us an idea of how they're going to rule especially since one of the factors considered in an injunction is the likelihood of success on the merits of the underlying case. I want to leave folks with this poll. In a Marquette poll recently from September of a 1,000 adults uh, polled, it said, Should, would you support a state law that bans abortion after 15 weeks? 40% say yes, 34% no. And I got to tell you, Josh, the, the momentum is towards life in this country. So that's the good trend. We need to keep it going and teaching our young people about life begins at conception and in the womb and needs to be protected. Well, Josh, thanks for being my guest today. 
In fact, we'll take that amicus brief that you referenced. We'll put it up on our website for people to read uh, more clearly, and that will be at ohioca.org. And you can visit us there, and we'll have that amicus brief on the court's decision or pending decision, shall we say. Josh, thanks for being my guest today. Thank you, Chris. Great to talk to you. Thank you, my friend. God bless. And if you missed any of today's program, you can hear it in its entirety at our website at ohioca.org. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.